today is week four of our series, Following Jesus in a Post-Christian Culture, and that, that keeps happening like every week, and, and there it is, there it is. In this series, what we've been identifying is that culture is changing, and it's, it's changing all around us. It doesn't take much to see that, and you, you know that, but in week one, we identified that, that the good news is that Jesus never calls us to change culture. Just sometimes that can be the mission that we maybe just feel like that's what we're supposed to do as Christians, is not what we're supposed to do. The invitation of Jesus has always been and always will be, come follow me. And so we're asking the question, how can we faithfully follow Jesus in a post-Christian context, in a post-Christian environment? In week one, we identify a little bit further what post-Christianity is and what it looks like to deconstruct our faith. Also identify that deconstructing our faith isn't always a bad thing. There can be a healthy deconstruction, but ultimately we, wanna, we want it to lead to what we've identified as the third stage of deconstruction, which is reconstruction and and that led us to week two, identifying that doubt is actually a catalyst, or it can be a means that God uses to reconstruct our faith. And that doubt can lead to some exploratory questions about our faith, and that's a good thing. We don't want to dismiss doubt. We don't want to suppress doubt. We want to be a church and a community that's open to questions, that's open to doubts. Otherwise, if we suppress it, you know this, but oftentimes doubt will come back with a vengeance. And so we want to be a space that's that's open and can talk about things honestly. And that's why we have Alpha as well. Alpha is tomorrow night again, by the way, Monday night at the ORBC, just across the street, 6.30, it kicks off, right? And, and anybody's still welcome to come. You can come anytime. You don't have to be there for weeks one, two, or three. We're four, four weeks in. We people just show up. We have people that just show up, like, for the first time every, every single week. And so you're, you're invited to, to join us for Alpha 2, where we just ask honest questions about faith. And last week, we asked the question, like, can the Bible be trusted? What does it look like to trust the Bible in an age where there's a lot of skepticism about the Bible? And furthermore, we really identified how to read the Bible. Y'all, y'all m- many of you were here last week. Y- y'all remember this, how to read the Bible, how not to read the Bible? Seven of you remember that. That's awesome. That's encouraging. Good. I'm just kidding. But today, today re- really is week two, in one, or part two, rather, of last week. I want to pick up right where we left off last week and dive a little bit further into this discussion. And and, and really, I want to kind of work with, with this title this morning. Is science the enemy of faith? Or if you're taking notes, you could even write it down like this. Is science the enemy of the Bible? And, and, and can the two kind of coalesce and coexist together? And that's what we want to kind of talk about over the next few moments, over the next few moments together. How can we trust the Bible in an age of skepticism? And what does it look like to kind of wrestle with science and the Scripture and really, in some regards, wrestle with them together? I remember when Courtney, for the very first time, my wife, had invited me while we were still dating to, to attend a holiday dinner with, with her family. And, and it was one of those opportunities, many of you are familiar with it, where she, before I showed up, said to me, hey, I just want to prepare you for what you're about to get into. There's going to be some awkward relatives who say some awkward things and there might be some kind of odd, you know, unique conversation that are taking place, right? Like, any married folks with me this morning, you know what I'm talking about, right? Like, well, it wasn't much different than the first time that she attended a holiday dinner with me, too. I, I said, okay, babe, I said, Here, here's the deal. I, I know like, your family was, it was, they were pretty awkward. They, they, they definitely, it was, it was, it was, it was different. It was, it was unique. But, but I'm just going to share with you right now, too, like, my family is, too. Like, they're, they're pretty strange as well. They're, they're going to say some things that might be a little off-color. Just, but here's the deal. Let's just ignore them, okay? We just, we love them. We don't always like them, but we love them, and so we're just going to ignore them, right? And 
I think sometimes we can, as Christians, treat science a little bit like that awkward family relative at the holiday time, right? Like, like I, I mean, I can't completely ignore them, but I'd rather just sort of kind of ignore them and just kind of push them aside. But, but we know this, and you know this, that, that ignorance really is a poor apologetic. We can't just kind of stick our heads in the sand and pretend like these things don't exist. Because in many ways, we have a whole generation of young people who are walking away from faith, walking away from Christ and Christianity because they're just not sure how to reconcile the scriptures in science. Maybe they, maybe they went off to university for the first time and they experienced a professor who was really intelligent and spoke some things to them that, that finally made sense to them or maybe at the very least kind of filled some gaps that they had and questions about faith that they weren't comfortable to ask when they were growing up. Or maybe it was you, and at some point, there was a book that got passed around your office, and, and it led to some questions that, as a result, you started to deconstruct your faith because you weren't really sure, where does science in the Bible, like, how can the two, how can the two coexist? Pew Research identified recently that 59% of Americans believe that there is a conflict between religion and science. And I don't know how you grew up or how you're growing up, but but I would have fell into this category. I believe that there was a conflict between religion and science. And it really wasn't until about 10 years ago that I started to kind of wrestle through some of these things. And, and I wanted to make sense of them. And that's kind of the heartbeat of this message today. I don't actually have three points or four points for you today. I just sort of want to share this message as a story. And there's a lot of, a lot of points that we're going to make this morning. But in many ways, as we talked about in week one, this message today is in large part my prayer this morning is that this would help equip you to not only wrestle with these conversations yourself, but furthermore, to be equipped to help others wrestle with these conversations as well. Because that's an opportunity that we have as well. Like this isn't, again, our faith isn't just about us. It's about other people too. And so today, I hope that some of this will, will equip you. Alvin, Alvin Plantinga, who, who was dubbed by Time Magazine as America's leading Orthodox Protestant philosopher of God coolest thing Tom Magazine ever said about somebody, by the way. America's leading Orthodox Protestant philosopher of God. Yes, please. Like, you know. But Alvin Plantinga said this, like it or not, there is and has been an apparent conflict. Many Christians have at least the vague impression that modern science is somehow unfriendly to religious belief. And for other believers, it is less of a vague impression than a settled, than a settled conviction. And ironically, Christians aren't the only ones who think that science and faith are incompatible. Leading atheist Jerry Coyne, he, he's well quoted as saying that science and religion are competitors in the business of finding out what is true about the universe. And in this goal, religion has failed miserably for its tools for discerning truth are useless. He goes on to start talking about Christians and says specifically that rationality is incompatible with irrationality in reference to speaking about Christians as being irrational. And that his rationality or their rationality is incompatible with our irrationality. In other words, and this is kind of a, just a broad stroke stereotype, but generally speaking, atheists view faith as the enemy of science and Christians view science as the enemy of faith. It doesn't have to be that way. But as a result, it leaves us falsely believing that we have to choose between faith or science. 400 years ago, Francis Bacon, who's now recognized as the architect of, of the scientific method, made the claim that God has given us two books. This is so good right here. 
That he's given us the scripture and creation, or in Francis Bacon's words, God's word and God's world. He believed that both the scriptures and creation give us a fuller revelation of who God is. But Francis wasn't the first one to come up with this. In fact, David wrote in Psalm 19 that the heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies proclaim the works of his hands. Paul goes on, the the Apostle Paul, and he wrote in Romans 1 that for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. In other words, the scriptures are saying that when we look at the mountains in an unhurried manner, where we just slow down and we pause, you can't help but identify the beauty and the strength of God. When you see the sunset or the sunrise, you can't help but wonder how creative is our God. That both the word of God and God's world are intended to give us a fuller revelation of who, of who God is. Now, now catch this, because for thousands and thousands of years, believers have found joy in creation, have stood in awe of its beauty, and have delighted in what God made. For thousands of years, believers have understood that science and faith are not incompatible, that they're not at war, that they're not enemies. In fact, just a quick Google search tells us that science is, simply put, the systematic study of the of structure and behavior, the physical and natural world through observation and experiment. In other words, kind of in layman's terms, it's, it's to understand that science tells us what the world is like, and Christianity tells us what the world means. Like, what's the purpose of life? What's the meaning behind all of this? And that's important to understand because they have very different and distinct functions. And we have to, if we, if we were making points this morning, this probably would be point one. We have to deconstruct the myth that science is the enemy of faith. Because hear me, hear me. If we don't, what happens is we raise a whole generation of kids who will eventually experience somebody who convinces them that what they believed about the scriptures isn't actually true. And they'll share with them some things that they've understood about science And as a result, this whole generation of kids will say, well, if I can't believe that in the Bible, then I certainly can't believe this in the Bible, and so therefore they'll discredit the entire Scripture. And so we have to understand the place of the Scripture in the place of science, and the two are not at war with with one another. But, this is a big but, if science and faith are not at war, then what about the times when science tells us things that seem to contradict explicitly what the scripture says, what the Bible is saying. And here's where I want to dig in a bit this morning. Because as, as Christians, our starting point is simple. It's Genesis 1, verse 1. In the very beginning, oh, here's a good little quote for you. 51% of scientists believe in a higher power. There it is. My point in sharing that previously would have been then we have to deconstruct the, the idea that faith and science are at odds with one another, right? Because even scientists, most scientists don't believe this. In fact, 35% of modern scientists actually identify the same Christian God that we worshiped in here this morning, that we're worshiping through the entirety of our lives as their God as well. That over a third of scientists today believe, generally speaking, the same thing that, that we 
that we believe. Even Francis Collins, who's the director of the National Institute of Health, he said that the God of the Bible is the God of the genome. God can be found in the cathedral and in the laboratory. Like, he's not dismissing. And yet, so often, we dismiss science and the scriptures, and we view those two things at odds with, with each other. But in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, somebody, <laughs> it says, in the beginning, God created. God created. Now hear me, once we believe that, then the most important questions of our lives has, has been answered because everything else flows from the first five words written in the scriptures that God is the creator. How he did it is secondary. And that may be where science comes in. Now just hang with me here because if you're anything like me, if you grew up in a pretty conservative Christian home, Sometimes these things can still feel at odds with, with one another. But just, let me just, let's just unpack this just a, a little bit more. Because there are times where there's a perceived conflict between our understanding of Scripture and science. And that's not going to go away. Why? Well, because we're human. And we're fallible. And science doesn't always get it right. And we don't always get it right. Our interpretation of Scripture isn't always right. And that requires a great deal of humility to hold the scripture with reverence and awe like we talked about last week, to understand that it is the full, fully inspired word of God and we need to treat it as such while also understanding its distinct purpose in our lives, why it was written and as we discussed last week, not only how to read the Bible but also how not to read the Bible so that we can, so we can get the greatest benefit out of what God intended for this book to benefit, us, to benefit us for. There's a quote from John Soden and Johnny Miller in their book, In the Beginning We Misunderstood, both, both professors at different universities. And this book helped me tremendously about, about 10 years ago. And it kind of led me on the journey. And in some ways, this sort of led me on the journey of teaching a message like this this morning. But near the, near the very beginning of the book, they write that the most vital question for the interpreters of any literature, and especially the Bible is to ask, what did the human authors, and ultimately the divine author, God the Holy Spirit, intend for his original audience to understand when they read the passage? If you remember last week, we identified that the scriptures were written for us, but they weren't written to us. It wasn't written in a modern language. and It wasn't written to modern people like you and, and me. And it certainly wasn't written within the context of a Western civilization. And as a result, we have to do our due diligence to in, in, some, in some ways and in in some regards, to kind of set ourselves into the scripture, to envision what it would be look like, to envision what it would look like if we were there at the time that it was written, to ask the questions: Who wrote it? Who was it written to? What were the people asking that the books were written to? To understand what was happening in the culture and the context of that day. Let's just unpack this a little bit because we don't have time today or even in this series to look at all the questions that we might have about science and the scripture, but let's just, let's just look at the overarching big picture questions because most of the skeptics of the scripture, most of their questions and their skeptical questions come as a result of Genesis. Even more, even more specifically, Genesis chapter 1 to Genesis chapter 11. So let's just for a moment, let me, just get, let me get a little, like a little teachy here for a moment. Let's just look at Genesis and ask this question. Why was Genesis written? And what did God want the original audience to know? This is a, this is a really important question. 
In fact, when you're reading the scripture, we have to ask these questions, or we will misinterpret the scripture, in some regards setting ourselves up to be disappointed, in other regards setting an entire generation of students up to be disappointed. We desire deeply to be a church that passes the baton of faith off well to the emerging generation. That we don't just tell them, ah, just believe. Just blindly believe. No, like we need to set, there are questions today that are being asked that weren't being asked when you and I were in high school. And as a result, we need to lean in and say, okay, what does it look like today to faithfully follow Jesus? Part of what it looks like today is setting the next generation up well. Setting ourselves up, possibly, even well. So why was Genesis written? Well, first and foremost, you need to understand that that Genesis was written by Moses. Some of you are familiar with Moses. If you're not, Moses essentially is the guy who was used in a radical manner by God. God did some incredible miracles through Joseph, often, or through Moses, oftentimes in spite of, of Moses. But Moses is most famous for being asked by God to, to go and take 600,000 Israelites, God's chosen people, and remove them from captivity or from slavery, from Egypt, from the Egyptian Pharaoh. Now, this book, though, Genesis in particular, was written, was written just after the Israelites were removed from captivity. And they had been enslaved by the Egyptians for 400 years. Now, prior to their slavery, they had had numerous generations had passed down the baton of faith, so to speak, from one generation to the next. But now they're enslaved in a very secular culture for 400 years. And much of the tradition and much of their understanding about God had been lost because of the space and the place and the culture in which they found themselves engulfed in and enslaved and enslaved in. And Moses not only wrote Genesis, but he wrote the first five books of the Bible, which we refer to as the Pentateuch today, which is just simply means five books. Like, it's not that creative. But Moses wrote all of them, and he wrote them really in, res- in, in large respect just to, to be a single volume of books to share with the Israelites for a very distinct purpose. See, the The book of Genesis was written intentionally to give to these people just removed from slavery and they were asking a lot of questions. And some of these questions that the Israelites were asking is hey Moses, are we going to survive here in the desert? We've been wandering around the desert now. Like are we going to make it? Have we just been removed from slavery and now we're just going to die here in this this desert? They're asking, is there really only one God, Moses? What about all the Egyptian gods? Because that's That's what we've seen for the last 400 years. That's what we've been forced to worship for the last 400 years. And are they angry at us? Because we've been told, like, if we leave, they're going to kill us. They're angry with us. Moses, what do you have to say about this? Is God still here in the desert right now, Moses? Or are are we all alone? Like, has he left us too? What do we have to do to please this one God so that we'll have crops that won't fail and have food for our families? Like, they're asking very real felt need type of questions they're asking things like should we worship more like the Canaanites who are now the closest civilization in proximity to us they're they're very close to us now we used to worship like the Egyptians should we just go ahead and join the Canaanites should we really be set apart like Moses I'm not sure if I'm buying in to what you're selling here they're asking these questions as a result there's over 600,000 of them so Moses identifies the best way for me to communicate who God is to you is to write it all out and to pass it out throughout the entirety of this community now so that these answers, so these questions rather, can receive some answers. But let's contrast that just for a moment 
to the questions that we're asking today that Genesis, by the way, was not answering. But these are questions that today you and I are, are wrestling with. And, we're, and we, go to the, we go to Genesis to ask the question, like, how old is the earth? Is it 6,000 or 6 billion years old? Like, was, was it in a six literal 24-hour day period or six long periods of time that God, that God made everything? Does the lack of major transitional forms in the fossil records disprove evolution? Could primitive building blocks of life have formed and organized themselves, laying the foundation for biochemistry? Was there really a talking snake? Were dinosaurs on Noah's Ark? And lastly, did Adam have a belly button? I just threw that last one in there because I knew it would get a little serious in here today. But, but we're asking these questions. And here, here's my main point. Here's my main point. It's sort of like... It's sort of like asking how water is formed, but going to, your, going to your child's room, pulling off a book from their shelf, and assuming you're going to find the answer in that book. These are not questions that Moses was intending to answer through the first five books of the Bible. Now today, you and I may want to know the answers to these questions when we read Genesis, but the original audience was not asking these questions. And so catch this. This is really important. And this has helped me tremendously because I grew up in a very conservative Christian home and I am so thankful for the orthodox Christian faith that has been passed down to me. Like, I'm so grateful for it. But I've had to wrestle with some of this stuff and understand some of this stuff. That studying why a book was written in the scriptures and to whom it was written to and learning about the context and the cultural world in which it was, in which it was written is not doubting God's word. It's actually taking the scriptures more seriously so that we can understand what God is saying. Hear me, hear me. Studying why a book was written and to whom, when in the context and the culture, is not lessening the truth of God's word. It's not taking the scriptures less seriously or even less literally. It's actually taking them more seriously. And that's what we're after here. Like, if you were here last week, if you weren't, go back and listen to the message. Like, like, we, we're going to stand on God's word. We're going to believe God's word. But we also have to believe it in the manner for which it was intended to be, to be believed. Billy Graham said it like this. At one point, he got into a little debate with a, with a scientist. And, and, and he, in, in a way that only Billy Graham could, you can actually watch this debate on YouTube. He said it with such humility and such, such candor and kindness. But but he said, I, I don't think that there's any conflict at all between science today and the scriptures. I think we've just misinterpreted the scriptures many times, and we've tried to make the scriptures say things that they weren't meant to say. And I think we have made a mistake by thinking the Bible is a scientific book. The Bible's not a book of science. Here it is, here it is. The Bible's a book of redemption. And so, of course, I accept the creation story. I believe that God created man. And whether it came by an evolutionary process and at a certain point he took this person or being and made him a living soul or not does not change the fact that God did create man. And whichever way God did it makes no difference as to what man is and man's relationship with God today. How good is that? Now that is coming from an extremely conservative Christian, Billy Graham. And yet, I would align a lot with what Billy Graham has said over the years, and I mean, how could you not? Like, the guy's a, you know, a legend. I was about to say a living legend. He's not living anymore, but he's a legend. He's absolutely a legend. Listen, God can do anything he wants. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. 
There's nobody bigger, nobody stronger. And he does, and you, he does not owe you and I an explanation for anything. For anything. And sometimes we look to God for those things. Like, you owe me this. You owe me. I don't owe you nothing. I created you. Like my mom said, I brought you into the world and I can take you out of the world. <laughs> God's not like that, by the way. But, and my mom's not either, but... It's never a question of God's ability. It's never. It's a matter of understanding what God is telling us in the verses we are reading. And here, this is really important. Almost every single criticism that comes up, I've talked to so many people, younger and older, who have deconstructed their faith simply as a result of Scripture and science not aligning in ways that they were taught that it should. Almost every criticism that comes up, whether the Bible teaches the earth is 6,000 years old or how to make sense of the earth being created on day one and the sun on day four and how our relationship with time today exists simply because of the way in which the earth and the sun are, are in connection with each other. But if the earth is created on day one and the sun on day four, I can't make sense of all this. Almost every criticism that comes up is a question the Bible was never trying to answer. And so when you find yourself in a debate with somebody... Well, what about this? What about that? You're like, that's not the purpose of the scriptures. So you're using the scripture to deconstruct my faith, and yet the scriptures were never intended to be, to be the answer for the things that you're saying I should deconstruct my faith for. In fact, we, we've shared this before, but, but I think there's really three layers to our belief system. As Christians, the first layer of the the, the core layer is simply in the, in the center here. It's our core beliefs. These are the non-negotiables. We can't take these off the table. These are things like the virgin birth of, Mary, like the virgin birth of Jesus through, through the Virgin Mary. These are things like the Trinity, God, Son, the Holy Spirit. These, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. These are things like the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. These are non-negotiable. These are the atonement of Jesus. We needed his blood fully poured out to atone for our sins. These are the non-negotiables of our faith. You understand me? But there are some things that we would just put into the category of convictions. And these are things in the scriptures where like, I'm pretty certain this is what it's saying here. But even if it's not, it doesn't change the way that I believe about God. It doesn't change what I believe about Jesus. It doesn't change what I believe about the Holy Spirit. These are things that maybe like about angels and demons or the operation of the charismatic gifts or things like the role of the church, like, they, like you guys, these are convictions, and you ought to have convictions, and trust me, like, I got some, I got some strong convictions about the scriptures, but I also want to hold them open-handed. Now, then there are just things that are just opinions, and opinions are things that it would be best if we didn't even hold. Like, our core beliefs are like, you don't let go of them, no matter what somebody says, nope. Conviction is like, I'll hold these open-handed and with great humility. I, I want to wrestle through this in, the, in my community. But opinions are, are things that a lot of people break relationship for. Opinions are things that denominations have been separated as a result of. And listen, some of them are good and some of, those are, some of them are right. So I'm not, like there are times where you gotta, you gotta separate as a result. But, but listen, listen, listen. Opinions oftentimes are things even like how old is the earth? I don't know. I don't know. And yet, and, yet, and yet, it's unfortunate that people get so, so dogmatic about these things. And as a result, 
It's like, oh gosh, you are creating a core belief out of something that's just intended to be an opinion. And, and you're going to have all sorts of friction within your life and within the lives of others. And I really believe that you are setting a, we are setting a whole generation up to walk away from God because we're holding tight things that God said, hold it loosely. Hold it. Hold it loosely. Listen, the resurrection of Jesus is the cornerstone of our faith. Everything else stems from there. We don't believe in Jesus because the Bible says so. We believe in the Bible because Jesus said so. I can't go too far down this path because I only have a little bit of time left, but the scriptures weren't even formulated. We didn't talk about this last week, but the volume of the Bible, all 66 books collected together in one, didn't even come together until somewhere around the year 400 AD, maybe the 5th or 4th century AD. In other words, John... Peter, James, Luke, Paul, they didn't have the Bible that we have today. They didn't have it. They had the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament. They didn't have the New. It wasn't collected yet together. It wasn't considered the canonized Word of God. It wasn't considered the inspired Word of God yet. That took some time. The reason I share that with you is because their faith thrived, not because of the Scripture. And yet, don't misunderstand me. Hear me loud and clear. Like, our faith can thrive in as a result of the Scriptures. Their faith, though, rested upon the fact that they had heard Jesus predict his own death, burial, and resurrection. Then he pulled it off. And they were like, dude, whatever that guy says, I believe. And Jesus quoted the Hebrew Bible time after time after time after time. And quoted it, quoted the Old Testament as a means of referencing who God was, as a means of showing more people about himself and as a result, that's why we believe in the inspired word of God. It all rests on Jesus. That's the core conviction of our faith. And so, if somebody tries to deconstruct your faith because they say, well, what about dinosaurs, young man? You're like, I don't know about dinosaurs. I just know about Jesus. I wouldn't mind learning more about dinosaurs, though. Would you tell me about that? Well, yeah, I learned this, that, and the other. Great. So that's how God did it. Awesome. I think the best way that we can respond to questions or answers that science gives us is, oh, wow, cool, that's how God did it. That's awesome. Good. Because everything stems from Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created. Boom. Drop mic. Right? Like, it, it, all stems, it all stems from that. I recently saw a YouTube debate a few months ago in which a, a Christian was asserting that scientific mysteries are proof for the existence of God. He's debating against an atheist scientist, and this guy's a Christian scientist, and he's saying things like, well, because you don't have answers to all of my questions, it's proof that there is a God. Like, I'm going to fill God in with all of your gaps. But listen, scientific mysteries are, they might point us to God, but they're not the basis for our faith. Because the problem is that then it can lead to a crisis of faith when certain mysteries are later resolved. Hear me, God is not the God of the gaps. Ooh, no, he's the God of everything. What we know and what we don't. Like, there are things that are known. And there's even more things that are unknown. And God is just the God of all of it. I'm trying to encourage us, I'm trying to equip us this morning to understand, like, we've got friends, young people, parents who walk away from the scriptures, walk away from faith, simply because they've just been taught that the Bible was written for a reason and a purpose that it wasn't originally written for. See, science 
doesn't explain away God. It just shows us how creative and beautiful God is. Okay, Jordan, but what if there seems to be a clear conflict between God's word and God's world? And that's why I would just encourage us to look closer, investigate more. Digressing back to to last week, ponder the scriptures together with some friends. Wait and study. Don't just believe the latest blog that you read or a single book that you read. I just want to encourage you with something really quick. Whenever I'm studying for something, a series, I will read a lot of things that I know are probably going to back up what I already believe. I'll also read a lot of stuff that isn't. Like preparing for this series, I read several, several atheist books. I didn't post them on Instagram because I don't want you guys reading them. <laughs> for no other, you say, oh, Jordan, are you trying to like create a cult here? No. But you can read whatever you want, of course. But what I'm saying is like, we, we need to understand though that, that like there are some arguments that oppose what we believe and we need to be well-rounded enough to understand that God is still God over it all. And so we need to wrestle with for a long period of time, not just a single book that tells us what we want to believe or tells us what maybe we didn't previously believe as a result of deconstruct our faith, but become more well-rounded than that. Ponder together in community. Get some references from, from some friends. We are so, there's something called the illusory effect. It has, it's in relationship to truth. We believe things simply because we hear it so often. Do you ever, there's, there's all sorts of studies that are done on this. The illusory effect, it's simply a result of the more you hear something, the more you believe it. And so even when then you hear something that you know to be true, you're like, I think that's true. But you don't hear it often enough, you continue to believe the thing that you hear most often. And so we need to ensure, as we discussed last week, that we are leaning into God's word. We need to read this book it's inspired by God. It's going to reveal more to you and I about who God is. It's going to help us grow in our understanding of Him. Don't give up what you love the most for what you know the least. And that's what we do so often with the Scriptures because of something that somebody once told us. Embrace the wonder of unknowing. Like, sit in that tension. Be okay with the mystery. Job says it like this in chapter 11. I'm closing closing here but can you fathom the mysteries of God can you probe the limits of the almighty they are higher than the heavens above what can you do they are deeper than the depths below what can you know in essence there's so much unknown that we don't understand but what we do know is that God knows it all Dominic Dunn says it says it best in his book when faith fails. There's another portion of that scripture if you want that, but he says it like this. I'm all off this morning. Oh, thanks, Victor. Isn't Victor awesome, by the way? The last two weeks are the first two weeks that Victor has played keys, and he's just done a fantastic job, man. Like, really well done. And proud of you. He says it like this. As followers of Jesus, we believe that someday every mystery will be resolved. Creation will encounter its creator. Science and faith will coalesce. Mind and spirit will unite. And all will fade into worship. And in that moment, as we step into eternity, we'll discover there wasn't a conflict after all. Great book, by the way, if you're interested in some further reading. It's, it's a pretty easy to read, pretty easy to read book, but talks a lot about what we're talking through in this series. 
the truth is, we take a closer look at the scripture, in particular the words of Jesus. We're just going to, we continually find a faith that just says, listen, all questions are welcomed. Indifference is renounced, is renounced. Ignorance is renounced. But your curiosity is welcomed. It, it actually causes us to lean even further into God and further into God's words. Jesus' words to us are just come follow me. And to say yes to Jesus is a continual invitation of a life with unending discovery. Questions aren't bad. They lead to discovery. Let's keep asking the questions. Let's ask them in community with one another. Are you with me this morning, church? I'll close with this right here. Paul writes this in 2 Timothy 3. He's writing to the young protege in his faith, Timothy, who's a pastor. And he says, Timothy, I want you to understand that all Scripture, all of it, is God-breathed and is useful for teaching. He's telling us the purpose of Scripture here, the purpose of our, of our Bible. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training, all of which is for what? Righteousness, which is the big old fancy church word that simply means God's way of doing and being that which is right. It's all used to help us become more and more like Jesus so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped so that we could be equipped. Equipped for what? Equipped to know all the answers to science? Nope. Equipped just for every good work. Let's keep our eyes fixed and focused on being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and doing the good works that Jesus wants us to do, that Jesus himself modeled for us how to do. Eugene Peterson says it like this in the message translation, that every part of Scripture is God-breathed and useful one way or another, showing us truth, exposing our rebellion, correcting our mistakes, training us to live God's way. Through the Word, we are put together and shaped up for the tasks that God has for us. Last, last year, last, last fall, I, I reconnected with some, some high school friends. There were five of us, and we self-proclaimed ourselves as the Fab Five. That's how lame we were. And over the course of a couple years, we started kind of all reconnecting. We'd all moved across the country. One of my buddies out in California, another one in Denver, two of them in Pennsylvania still, and then of course me here. And, and we said, let's, let's do a trip together, guys. So we, we planned this trip to Texas, because where do guys go? Texas. So we go to Texas, and we just got a little cabin in the middle of nowhere, and and we just started to reconnect and catch up. And we just, we just, around a fire one night, we just, we just asked each other questions. Like, hey, just, what's going on in your world now? What's going on in your world? And one of my best friends, he was the best man at my wedding, actually. Super, like, I just love, he's a really brilliant guy. Just awesome. Like, I love him so much. And he started sharing with us a little bit of kind of his journey of faith. We, we grew up together. We were raising. We've been best friends since third grade. And he started sharing with me how, how shortly after college, he, he started to have a lot of questions about faith, and so he went on this journey of discovery. And make a long story short, he completely deconstructed his faith. And he said, Jordan, I don't want this to be uncomfortable for you, in particular because you're a pastor, but like, I would describe myself today as an atheist. Maybe agnostic, maybe, but lean more towards atheist. And this is not an individual who walked away from God because of some pain or disappointment. He didn't have an answer to prayer. Like, it was much deeper than that. He'd done his research. He studied. He read a lot of books. And he said, I just can't believe the Bible any longer because of what I understand about science. He had completely deconstructed his faith, completely. 
And my greatest disappointment is that for about 10 years, we just completely lost touch. And I started to share with him some of what we talked about today. And I said, man, I, don't, I think you're using the Bible to answer some questions that the Bible wasn't intended to answer. But he, he kind of like walked past that point already. And I literally got in the airport. And I called my wife. I just called him. This, this is one of my best friends. Like, how could this happen? And I was torn up about it. And it was from that point until right now. I said, God, we will not be a church that allows that to happen on our watch. And so that's what the, that's really, that's kind of the thrust behind this series, was that one moment, like that one example, and just that, that one friend. And, and so what I'm asking us today, the way I want to end this service is a little bit different, a little bit different than what we normally do. I want us to pray together. If you're newer in here this morning, maybe this is your first time, and you're just kind of checking out church or trying to figure out what you believe about God. You can just sort of sit back, relax if you want, or if you'd say, man, no, I, like, I want to I join in and agree with this prayer, and I'll just encourage you to engage in this right now, but I want us to pray a bold prayer of faith this morning. Would you close your eyes? As I pray, I just want you to, underneath your breath, just say, yes, God, yes, like, amen, like, just agree with what we're praying with here. Father, we pray that we could be a people, that we would be a church that is open to people asking questions, open to people's doubts, that people would feel like they could run to ethos when they have questions. And that we would even become a church where people begin to hear in our community, if you have doubts about faith, if you have doubts about God, the people at ethos are open to sit down, grab coffee with you, wrestle with the scriptures together, tell you, I don't really know, but I do know about Jesus. Let's talk more about Jesus. May we be a people, God, who helps point our kids to Jesus and his resurrection as the cornerstone of our faith. May we be a people who hold the scripture, our interpretation of the scripture loosely, but also hold the inspiration of the scripture tightly. May we be a people who lock arms with the people on our left and on our right, with those watching online, with those who will join us in the future who aren't a part of our community yet, but may we be a people who together faithfully follow Jesus in a world where following him isn't all that popular anymore. But may we be a people who encourage one another to step back into a place of prayer, to step back into a place of God's presence, step back into a place of worship, to step back into a place of awe and wonder about who God is in the mystery of God. And may the mystery of God, come on, let's, let's believe this right now. May the mystery of God leave us in awe of God, leave us wanting more of God, leave us, cause us to lean further into God. Now, Father, through the power of your Holy Spirit, do what we can't do. Form us to become more and more like Jesus so that we really can be the hands and the feet, the family and the body of Jesus Christ on the earth today. Guard our children's hearts and minds. Protect their, protect, protect their, 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 their simple ways of thinking, their childlike faith. In Jesus' name.